We're so glad you're here on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast. Today we'll hear from Megan as she teaches on 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 through chapter 4, verse 5. As we near the end of our summer study, we'd like to ask you to fill out a short survey about your time in the Word this summer. You can find the survey on our website at daytonwomeninthewordcom slash 2-timothy-survey. In our summer study this year, we learned a lot about sharing the gospel and passing on the treasure of God's Word. If you are curious about what that looks like in your life, we'd like to invite you to join us at Dayton Women in the Words Teaching Collective. Teaching Collective is for women who desire to know God and His Word on a deeper level and how to effectively share what they are learning with others. Dayton Women in the Word is all about women helping women read the Bible. No matter where you are in this journey or where God has placed you to share your faith, come join us. Teaching Collective meets the third Tuesday of each month, beginning August 18th from 7 to 9 p.m. For more information, check out daytonwomeninthewordcom collective or follow us on Facebook. May we be able to say with the Apostle Paul, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Welcome back to week seven of our study in 2 Timothy. God has already shown us so much in this short, thick book, hasn't he? And what a pivotal moment this letter represents in Timothy's life, and what a privilege it is for us to be allowed to peek in on this inspiring conversation between Paul and Timothy. I recently started a nightly Bible study with our 12-year-old daughter using Exploring the Bible by David Murray. We're currently working through the first few chapters of Genesis. And a couple nights ago, we were talking about what an act of grace it was for God to forbid Adam and Eve from remaining in the garden after they had sinned. Because if they had been able to stay, they would have continued to eat from the tree of life, the other important tree that grew in Eden with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And if they had done that, they would have lived forever in their sin. But God had another plan. In his grace and kindness, he evicted them from that perfect garden and prevented their access to that tree so that instead of an eternity of sin on earth, they would have an eternity of redemption in heaven. And my daughter's eyes lit up as she realized that Adam and Eve will be with us in eternity. I can't believe I'll get to meet them, she exclaimed. And Moses, and Abraham, and Joseph, and Paul, I said, and Timothy. Yes, I cannot wait to sit down with Timothy and hear all about his work in Ephesus, his travels with Paul, and what he was thinking and feeling as he read this letter. Which parts came to me more as the years passed? And seriously, Timothy, did you make it to Rome to see Paul once more before his execution and stand by him in his final moments? 
What a cliffhanger. Well, the passage of 2 Timothy that we've been studying this week is the climax of this letter. The first three chapters of 2 Timothy neatly sum up all that Paul wants Timothy to remember as he faces a future of ministry without his beloved mentor and friend. Paul has written with the purpose of strengthening and inspiring Timothy. And it all leads up to chapter 4, verse 1, where he says, I charge you. This is Timothy's big moment, his turning of the tassel, his moment of liftoff. Paul is passing the baton of ministry to Timothy. As we study today, keep a lookout for some of our main themes as they appear. We will see perseverance through suffering and persecution, remember, 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 be a good steward of your time and gifts, and we'll see spiritual parenthood modeling, pass it on. And we will approach today's passage in two sections. Section one will cover 2 Timothy 3, verses 10 through 17, and we're calling this Timothy's Firm Foundation. Section 2 will cover 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5, and we're calling this Timothy's Charge. So let's start by reading this week's scripture, and please read out loud with me, starting in chapter 3, verse 10. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured. Yet from them all, the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you... Continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness so that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good Work. I charge you in the presence of God and of Jesus Christ, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom, preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. As for you, always be sober-minded, endure suffering, do the work of an evangelist, fulfill your ministry. Let's pray. Father God, we are so thankful for the gift of scripture and that through it, we can know you, the creator of the universe. May my words be honoring to you, Lord. Guide our thoughts and hearts toward you as we study together today. Amen. 
Well, last week, Laura walked us through a host of attitudes and behaviors that will be prevalent in what what Paul calls the last days. And these were timely warnings, not only for Timothy as he led the church in Ephesus, but they are timely for us as well, since we are still living in the last days. In verses 1 through 9 of chapter 3, Paul told Timothy about the marks of unrepentant sinners, false believers, weak women, and false teachers. And in verse 10, Paul begins by saying, you, however... And Paul is saying, this is what you will see happening all around you, Timothy, all the things that were mentioned in verses 1 through 9, but you can't let that derail you. These final verses of chapter 3 are focused on reminding Timothy of the firm foundation he can stand on in the midst of the evil that is all around him, and that foundation is ours as well, and it is God's word. In verses 10 and 11, Paul reminds Timothy of all that he has already done. He has been a faithful student of Paul, following his example and learning through the sufferings and persecutions of his mentor. Paul refers to what happened in Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, and the details of what happened to him can be found in Acts chapters 13 and 14. But Isn't he sitting in a Roman prison right now, awaiting execution, having previously endured so much persecution that he'd even been left for dead after being stoned? So why is he leaving out all of this other suffering when he's talking here? The answer can be found when we look at our map. So please turn in your companion guide to Timothy's Missionary Journeys, the map on page 41. And let's pause and notice a few things here. First of all, these three cities are obviously close to each other geographically. On the right side of the map, you'll see Iconium and Lystra, and they're about 20 miles from each other, and about 90 miles to the northwest is Antioch. Second, we know from our study of the context that Timothy was from Lystra, And with the proximity of his hometown to Antioch and Iconium, Timothy knew these three cities very well, and he would have heard friends and neighbors talking about what happened to Paul there. And it's even possible that Timothy witnessed some of these events firsthand. And for Timothy, these memories would have a visceral quality to them because they are connected to the places that he knows and loves, and they're connected to the early days of his faith in Jesus. Paul is bringing Timothy back to strong memories of his past that will fan the flame, stir up the emotions and the resolve that are connected to the formation of his faith in Christ and his anointing to the work of spreading and teaching the gospel. At the end of verse 11 and in verse 12, Paul reminds Timothy that he endured all of these persecutions. And the implication is that Timothy should follow his example because all who desire to live a godly life in Christ will suffer. Persecution is something that we should expect as believers. Paul again reminds Timothy that all of those narrow escapes and the ability to continue his work was because of one thing, the Lord rescued him. 
And Paul's continued ministry, despite opposition, should remind us of another ministry that flourished and persevered despite fierce opposition, the ministry of Jesus Christ. In the accounts of Paul's ministry and in Christ's, we see that a sovereign God is fully capable of protecting and preserving those who serve him. Paul wants Timothy to remember that no matter how dire the circumstances may seem, the Holy Spirit guards the good deposit. The Lord rescues. He made us. He calls us. He equips us, and he preserves us. But as readers who know Paul's life will soon end, the question inevitably follows, where is Paul's rescue now? And you may be asking the question, where is my rescue? If this is the cry of your heart, I want to first encourage you that our God hears your cries And scripture shows us that it is right and good for us to lament, to cry out in our anger, in our fear, in our uncertainty, in our suffering. Things are not the way they're supposed to be. And there are no easy answers to the question of suffering. But we must always look through the lens of the cross. Because when we do, we see that Paul's rescue from that prison cell did come. And he knew it was coming. He tells us later in chapter 4 that it's coming. And that rescue was eternal. And our rescuer is coming for us. And his ultimate rescue plan is what the gospel is all about. In verse 13, Paul warns Timothy that those who reject Christ will continue their descent into depravity. And on their journey, they will not only deceive themselves, but about God, about truth, about creation, about eternity, about so many things. But they will actively deceive others as well. Where do you see this in our world today? Verses 14 and 15 are written in contrast to verse 13. Some will reject Christ, but you, Timothy, must resist the temptation to give up. This is about Timothy's future. Keep going. Stay on this path. Remember what you learned, who you learned it from, and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings, which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. Without faith in Christ, the scriptures would mean nothing. That faith and the wisdom that we gain from scripture is what equips Timothy. And it is what equips us as well. Here, Paul again calls Timothy to remember all that he has been given while pointing him toward what lies ahead. Isn't it interesting that our God, who is not confined by time, is here showing us how our past, present, and future are connected in the living out of our faith. And when Paul talks about the sacred writings, he is talking about the Old Testament. It has the capability to teach us about our need for salvation, about God's promise for salvation, and how to receive it. 
But because we have free will, we can choose to receive that wisdom or we can choose to reject it. Now, Timothy, he chose to accept that wisdom. But the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders did not, as we see in John chapter 5. Please turn there with me. Jesus is responding to Jewish leaders who are questioning him because he had healed a man on the Sabbath. So let's begin together in verse 39. Jesus says, You study the scriptures diligently because you think that in them you have eternal life. These are the very scriptures that testify about me, yet you refuse to come to me to have life. And then jumping down to verse 46, If you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote about me. But since you do not believe what he wrote, how are you going to believe what I say? Jesus himself validates the ability of the Old Testament to make us wise for salvation. Because even Moses, who wrote Genesis over 1,300 years before Jesus was born, had written about him. Author Stephen Larson says this, The entire Bible is about the Lord Jesus Christ. The Old Testament says he's coming. The Gospels say he's here. The book of Acts proclaim him. The epistles explain him. And Revelation says he's coming again. That's the Bible in a nutshell. The very first verse of the Bible, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. We know that that is the Lord Jesus Christ who was God's agent in creation. John 1 verse 3 says, everything that has come into being has been created by Christ. And Colossians 1.16 says that all things are from him and by him and for him. And the last verse in the Bible, Revelation 22.21 says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Amen. And that's the bookends around the entire Bible. And so the whole Bible is a hymn book. It's all about him, the Lord Jesus Christ. But how could Moses have possibly written about Jesus? Second Timothy holds the answer. Because all scripture is breathed out by God. This is not new information for Timothy. Again, Paul is reminding him of what he already knows what he must remember as he leads the church in Ephesus. I want to dwell in verses 16 and 17 for a bit to make sure that we understand the depth and breadth of what Paul is talking about here. But first, let's talk about the doctrinal implications. The word doctrine means a collection of teachings on a particular subject. And there are many doctrines within the Christian faith. Doctrine helps us understand our faith, protect it from false teaching, and explain it to others. And if you're interested in learning more about the core doctrines of the Christian faith, I highly recommend the New City Catechism created by the Gospel Coalition. It's structured to encourage you to explore one doctrinal truth each week of the year and is designed to be studied by adults and children alike. And when Paul says all scripture, 
He is primarily referring to the Old Testament, but commentators believe that Paul may also be including the New Testament books and letters that had been written at the time, as they were already being recognized in the churches as inspired. So let's look at four characteristics of Scripture that are central to the doctrine of Scripture and how verses 16 and 17 support them. First, Scripture is inspired. When Paul says all Scripture is God-breathed, he's saying that it was more than mere human writing. It was inspired. And while we can never have a full human understanding of what this means or exactly how God did it, essentially it means that the Holy Spirit so directed the human writers that the finished product was exactly what he intended. The Greek word that Paul uses for God-breathed is found nowhere else in Scripture. Some scholars even think that he invented it to make a point. The word is theopneustos, And Paul combines theos, meaning God, and pneuma, meaning spirit or breath. And this is where we get the words pneumonia, pneumatic. So God didn't take what the biblical author said and elevate it with his divinity. He breathed out what was to be communicated to his people through the men who wrote it. And that truth has huge implications because if we believe that scripture is inspired then three additional characteristics of scripture logically follow so the second characteristic of scripture is that it is inerrant because scripture is inspired it is without error the god-breathed scriptures are wholly true in all things that they assert and affirm in the original writings And we can know this, too, because God is without error. He is never wrong. He never lies. And he is omniscient. He knows everything. So then his breathed-out word is also without error. Third, Scripture is authoritative. And because Scripture is inspired and inerrant, it carries the authority of being God's own words. And this is why, as believers, we give Scripture authority in our lives. If our omnipotent omnipotent God is the supreme authority over everything, then his words carry that same authority, just as a king's signet ring gives authority to the message that it seals. Nothing else can claim itself to be a higher authority than God-breathed Scripture, And because all scripture is breathed out by God, that means every word matters, and every word is true, not just the ones that we're comfortable with. Fourth, scripture is sufficient. Because scripture is inspired, inerrant, and authoritative, it is the final authority for Christians for faith and godliness, with all other authorities being subservient to Scripture. There is no need for anything in addition to Scripture, since the sacred writings, the Old Testament, makes us wise for salvation through Jesus Christ. Sometimes we forget that the Bible is sufficient, and we wander off looking for something extra. But the problem with that is, Scripture cannot be kind of sufficient. Other writings can be helpful, 
but they are not foundational because we don't need them. God's word alone is sufficient, and that is exactly what Paul wants Timothy to remember. Paul's intent in verses 16 and 17 was to remind Timothy that scripture equipped him for every good work. And when we recognize that all scripture is God-breathed, we invite its truth to shine in every dark corner of our lives. Alistair Begg draws our attention to this painting by Rembrandt and says, The Bible itself appears to be actually illuminated from within. And that was the point Rembrandt wanted to make, that the illumination came from the very text itself. It wasn't something that was shown from the outside into it, but it was something that was inherent in the very text itself whereby the very spirit that inspired its writing was now the one who illuminated its truth and brought conviction to the heart of the skeptic. In other words, the same spirit that, that inspired the word illuminates the word and convinces us that it is the word. That's how, and that is actually only how. And the scriptures are Timothy's firm foundation and ours. And it is in God's foundational word where we find his tender invitation to the true transformation that comes when we are not just hearers of the word, like the women that Paul described last week in verse 7. The transformation comes when we invite the word to hold its rightful place in our hearts and we welcome the knowledge of truth, allowing it to have its way in us so that the old has gone and the new has come. After reminding Timothy of Scripture's inspiration and authority in verse 16, verse 17 exhorts Timothy of Scripture's usefulness in his life. The power that Scripture holds and how Timothy is to use these God-breathed Scriptures. So let's dive into those details now. Scripture has many uses, but these are the ones that Paul calls out now for Timothy to remember. Paul tells Timothy that all scripture, not just the parts that make us feel good, is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. And it is useful because it is God-breathed. First, scripture is useful for teaching. It educates us. But if it were not God-breathed, we could never be certain that what we are teaching or being taught is the truth. Because it is God-breathed, it is true. And we can boldly receive and teach what it says, even when it runs countercultural. Scripture teaches us everything God has determined we need to know about him, his son, his spirit, and his rescue plan for mankind. Second, scripture is useful for reproof. The word reproof can also mean rebuke or sharp disapproval or criticism. And this tells us that scripture is useful for showing us when we get it wrong. It sets up the boundaries that God designed for us. Boundaries not meant to take our freedom, but meant to free us from the enslavement of sin. If scripture were not God-breathed, these boundaries would truly just be rules from another age, and they would carry no weight for our lives today. 
But because scripture is God-breathed, we can trust it today and forever to tell us when we've acted in a way that God disapproves of, when we miss the mark, when we fail to live lives that are set apart from sin. And this matters because if we do not set ourselves apart from sin, we choose instead to set ourselves apart from God. Third, scripture is useful for correction. When we live outside of the boundaries that God has set up, when we miss the mark, scripture doesn't condemn us, it corrects us. If it were not God-breathed, we would have no real assurance that its corrections take us where we need to go. But God-breathed scripture shows us how to get back on track, to make course corrections, because that's what a loving father does for his children. Scripture tells us that we all miss the mark. And even Paul laments that despite all he has come to know and believe, he still does things he doesn't want to do. Scripture first rebukes us, and then it corrects us. It tells us how to be reconciled to God and how to get back on the right path. It tells us that we need forgiveness and that God offers it freely to all who are willing to receive it. Scripture doesn't just get us off the path that leads to destruction. It puts us on the path that leads to life. Fourth, Scripture is useful for training in righteousness. When an athlete is training for an event, she learns from a more knowledgeable and experienced source, a coach, all the things that she needs to do to compete well in her event. And this includes proper nutrition, physical discipline, dedication to practice, mental toughness and perseverance, and a deep knowledge and understanding of the sport itself. The coach is a source of wisdom, someone the athlete looks to and even emulates in order to achieve her goal. But the coach can only be as wise as their source of knowledge. And likewise, if scripture were not God-breathed, it would only be useful for training in man's idea of righteousness and not God's. But because God-breathed scripture is our coach, and because it is coupled with the guidance of the Holy Spirit, it trains us to achieve the believer's goal of living a righteous life, a life that looks more like what God designed than what the world models. And now verse 17 tells us why scripture must be used in the ways that Paul just outlined. That the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. And when we recognize the inspiration and authority of scripture, we will eagerly use it in our lives. And when a believer does this, when she allows scripture to teach, reprove, correct, and train her in righteousness, she is complete, lacking nothing, and equipped for every good work the Father asks her to do. And this brings us to our first main truth for section one. God's perfect word is the firm foundation of our faith. God's perfect word is the firm foundation of our faith. Timothy needed to be reminded that the call in his life was not a fleeting thought or a passing feeling, 
It was a firmly rooted calling that began before Timothy was born and its foundation was laid in Christ's work of redemption, foretold generations before in the sacred writings. Do you sometimes wonder why God has chosen you to do the things that he's placed on your heart? Be assured your calling is no accident. It is carefully orchestrated by a God who cares about the little things as much as he cares about the big things. And as with Timothy, our Heavenly Father has taken great care to prepare you for every part of it. In your family, in the people he has brought into your life to mentor and encourage you, and in the gift of the sacred writings. You and I have no control over most of the things that come into our lives, but in America, we do have freedom and control over how much scripture we have in our lives. And that said, we all experience seasons when we feel overwhelmed by the obstacles that keep us from spending time in God's word, including a lack of desire for it. What often follows is a devastating cycle of guilt and shame. And I personally have spent years in this kind of cycle. If this describes you too, will you take some time today to read and be encouraged by the story of the widow's might? It's found in Mark 12, 41 through 44. And it is a beautiful picture of how God views the offerings that we give out of our poverty when we feel we have nothing to give. And then, would you take a moment to pray and confess your lack of desire for his life-giving word? I cannot count the number of times I have prayed, God, I want to want you. Ask him to give you the desire to be in the word and to make it a priority in your day. Our God is not a harsh dictator ready to condemn us. He is a loving father, the God who sees us, and he is cheering us on, eagerly waiting to meet us in prayer and as we read and study his word. What a precious, irreplaceable gift God's word is for us. Do you recognize that God's word is the very foundation of our lives and that it points us to Jesus, who we come to know through faith? Knowing this in our hearts must translate then to action. We must search the scriptures as one searches for the most valuable treasure. We have to not only know its worth, We must live out that knowledge and submit ourselves to scripture's uses in our lives of teaching, reproof, correction, and training in righteousness so that we, women of God, will be equipped for every good work. Well, now we enter the fourth and final chapter of this epistle, And pardon me for a second. (laughs) Paul has spent the first three chapters reminding Timothy of who he is, where his faith and hope rest, where and in whom the strength is found to endure suffering and persecution, the truth of the gospel that frees Timothy from any shame in his service, what kind of man he needs to be, the challenges that lie ahead, and that he has been given all that he needs to accomplish everything he is tasked with. 
chapter 4, verse 1, is the climax and confirmation of all that has been said to this point. Paul is passing the torch to Timothy. I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearance and his kingdom. This is a solemn charge, one made in the presence and power of God the Father and God the Son and made in the authority that Paul has already documented. Paul's authority as noted in 2 Timothy 1.1 and Timothy's authority noted in 2 Timothy 1.6. So what is this solemn charge? Timothy is to preach the word, to be ready in season and out of season to reprove, rebuke, and exhort with complete patience and teaching. We've talked about this before, but it bears repeating. Timothy is not, he, Timothy is to preach the word as it has been preached to him. Paul doesn't tell him to add to it or take away from it. He is, as Jillian taught in chapter 2, verse 15, responsible for rightly handling the word of truth. Paul doesn't say, well, people don't like being told that they fall short of God's standard, so from now on, maybe leave that part out. And he doesn't say, make up some new stories about Jesus that will help the people in Ephesus relate to him better. No, Timothy is to preach the word that was preached to him that was preached to Paul, that was preached to the apostles, that was fulfilled by Jesus, that was written by the prophets, that was breathed out from the mouth of God. Now before you say, I'm not a preacher of the word, so this doesn't apply to me. We are all preachers of the word. We preach in our actions and behaviors. We preach in our social media posts, We preach to our children and our spiritual children. We preach to our friends over coffee. We are all preachers of the word, and we are all responsible for doing it rightly. And we also have the responsibility to lovingly hold the pastors and preachers in our lives to the same standards that Paul sets for Timothy. Paul charges Timothy to be ready in season and out of season. And like Timothy, we need to be ready to share the gospel when we feel like it and when we don't, when we're prepared and when we aren't. And friends, this also means that we should be ready to share the gospel whether or not the preaching comes at a convenient time to the one who hears it. If the Holy Spirit is urging you to speak, speak. It doesn't matter if the sister across from you isn't in the mood to hear God's truth, and it doesn't matter if it's uncomfortable for you. Our responsibility is to be ready to preach the word no matter what. But this is not a passive readiness. It is an active preparedness. It's preparing our hearts and minds through prayer. It's pouring over the scriptures to learn more about who God is and what it means to be adopted into his family. It is humbly receiving the refining fires of hardship and suffering. It is waiting patiently for God to redeem what is lost. It is being sensitive to and aware of every opportunity to speak God's word into the lives of those around us.
And lest we fall into the trap of believing that it only matters what we say and not how we say it, Paul charges Timothy to reprove, rebuke, and exhort or encourage with complete patience and teaching. And patience isn't just about being a good listener and waiting to see the results. The Greek definition of patience here describes a state of being able to bear up under provocation. So even when Timothy's preaching of the word is met with ridicule and taunting and disparaging, his job is to keep on doing it. And the same is true for us. So why does it matter that Timothy preaches the word in season and out of season, rebuking, reproving, and exhorting with complete patience and teaching? Because, as Paul warns in verse 3, the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching, but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. Every moment counts. Every conversation matters. Does verse 3 sound eerily like Paul is describing our culture today? How can these words written 2,000 years ago possibly so aptly describe the world we live in today? A world where so-called Christian authors tell us that their new ideas hold more authority than scripture and that everything we need to live a great life is found within us and not in Christ? I can think of no better place to mention Hebrews 4.12. For the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. God's word is as relevant to us today as it was to the original hearers because it is living and active. Because the God who breathed it out is living and active. People will not endure sound teaching will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions and will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. You know what this sounds like to me? This sounds like you do you. Speak your truth. This sounds like a God created in our image. It sounds like the very origin of sin in the Garden of Eden when Satan asked Eve, did God really say... This is nothing new. It's actually the oldest lie in the book. And what does it mean to have itching ears? It means looking for the kind of teaching that will scratch an itch, fill a need, excuse a behavior, justify a lifestyle. Paul says that those with itching ears will not endure sound or healthy teaching. They will not listen to the truth of Scripture as it's written, as God breathed it out. Instead, they will find people who are teaching what they want to hear. And as a result, they will turn away from truth and turn toward myths, lies. But sadly, Paul is not just talking about they. He's talking about we. And he's talking about me. Because I have been the one with itching ears. 
I have been the one who turned away from listening to the truth. I spent a season of my life telling myself that Christ's free offer of grace and forgiveness meant that I could walk boldly into sinful choices because when I was ready to be good, God would just forgive me and everything would be fine. But what I told myself was only half true. God did forgive me, and he has redeemed me in more ways that I can count. But everything was not fine. Those choices I made 20 years ago had massive consequences at the time and still have ripple effects today. The results of my rebellious and purposeful decision to live outside of God's loving boundaries and willingly enslave myself to sin. I wanted to live the way I wanted to, but I also wanted to tell myself that God was okay with my choice. So I looked for a way to justify it, and I manipulated the meaning and the intent of the gospel to do it. Perspective makes all the difference. So what is your perspective? Do you view God's word through the lens of your desires? Or do you form your beliefs looking through the lens of God's word? Do you come to scripture with an idea that you want the Bible to support or justify? Or do you open your Bible with a true desire to hear God's perspective and respond in humble obedience? If we really believe the Bible is authoritative and true, then everything else has to answer to it, not the other way around. And when we have itching ears, we ignore and manipulate everything that runs counter to our comfort. We look for teaching that appeases our desires and excuses us when we choose to live in ways that do not honor God. But when we really want to know the truth, what we find in these pages is indescribably cohesive, beautiful, and liberating. And the difference is viewing our world through the lens of truth or creating truth through the lens of our sinful desires. The first requires a constant dying to self. And the second asks God's word to die to our version of the truth. But Paul implores Timothy to walk a different path, a better path. In verse 5, Paul says that Timothy must continue to live his life in a way that is distinctly different from what he has just described. Instead of looking for teachers that align with what he wants to hear, Timothy must always be clear-minded, recognizing truth and error. And he must be the kind of teacher who does not bend under the weight of the pressure to say only what itching ears want to hear. He must patiently endure the suffering that comes to those who speak truth to itching ears. He must do the work of an evangelist, one who proclaims the gospel boldly. And while many have deserted the cause of Christ around him, Timothy must fight the good fight and complete his ministry. And don't we see this today as well? Friends turning away from the truth and well-known Christian public figures denouncing their faith with very public deconversion stories. This is nothing new. And Paul tells us in this epistle the names of many who have deserted him and deserted Christ. But Paul stayed the course. He charges Timothy to do the same. 
and so must we. Paul has set an excellent example of all these things, and again, he never asks anything of Timothy that he has not done himself. But Paul is only a shadow of the one he follows, the perfect model of all that is being asked of Timothy, Jesus Christ. And this brings us to our second and final main truth for today's teaching. Jesus Christ is our perfect model for every calling. Jesus Christ is our perfect model for every calling. If you're like me, you've probably spent years overlooking your callings, minimizing and downplaying their importance. Are you a sister in Christ? Then God calls you to be an excellent sister. Are you a worker? Then you are called to be an excellent worker. Are you a wife? A mother, you are to live out every calling with excellence. Jesus is our perfect model in every calling because he shows us how to balance grace and truth, how to love sacrificially, how to live in obedience despite the suffering that awaits. He is the perfect model of selfless service to others. And by his grace, when we fall short, in small ways and big ones, we are blessed with the opportunity to repent, to learn from our mistakes, and to be sent out again and again. Paul knew that Timothy would make mistakes, and our Heavenly Father knows that we will too. But that didn't stop Paul from trusting Timothy to carry the torch, and it doesn't stop our Heavenly Father from trusting us. So often, I am afraid to take the first step because I'm afraid to fail. But the fear of failure is shattered when I recognize that God already knows I will make mistakes, and he loves me and calls me anyway. We don't have forever to fan the flame and walk in obedience. We can't afford to wait for the perfect moment because every moment counts, So how is God asking you to step forward in faith to fulfill your ministry? Have you made the mistake of overlooking or minimizing your first callings? Focusing instead on work that our culture says is more important or fulfilling? It is all too easy to grow weary in serving day after day. But God is glorified in our everyday obedience So will you ask God to fill you with a renewed desire to serve with excellence and perseverance, even in the mundane? Remember, when God calls us, he fully trains us and equips us for the tasks ahead. We will experience suffering. We will falter. We will fall short. But this is not cause for shame. It is a reminder to us that there is one who scorned the shame in his suffering. One who never falters. One who never falls short. And as Paul encouraged the church in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10, God's grace is sufficient for us. His power is made perfect in our weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weakness, 
insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. When we recognize our need, we look to him, the author and perfecter of our faith, and we leave room for his strength, and we bring him glory. And that, dear sisters, beautifully echoes the good news of the gospel, that he takes our weakness, our sin, and replaces it with his strength, his righteousness, so that one day we will sit at his feet, surrounded by friends, family, and a great cloud of witnesses, like Paul and Timothy. Let's pray. Father God, you are sovereign, and your word is perfect, authoritative, and it is all that we need. Let your word take root in our hearts, and may your spirit lead us into all truth. Let it be the firm foundation of our faith as we looked to the perfect model of Jesus Christ in all that we do. Amen. We are entering our final week of study together. I know that the Holy Spirit has so much more to show us in these final verses of 2 Timothy, so let's follow Paul's example and finish well. This week, we will be studying 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 22, and as you study, we encourage you to use the study tool of commentary. And when we read scripture, we invite the Holy Spirit to meet us and guide us into understanding of what we're reading. So in our personal study, we discover what God has to show us about scripture. And when we read commentary, we discover what God has told someone else about scripture. And that's why we always wait to use the tool of commentary until after we have spent plenty of time in our personal study. We use commentary to confirm and deepen what we have learned in our personal study. And please watch the At Home in the Word video about commentary to learn more. God be with you, and we look forward to seeing you again next week. Thanks for tuning in today. Here on the Dayton Women in the Word podcast, you can listen to this summer's teachers throughout the remainder of our study, with a new lecture being released every Wednesday. All resources for summer study can be found on our website, daytonwomeninthewordcom slash 2-timothy-resources. Grace be with you.